if anyone asks me, I always say, go to the cheapest school you can find that has the best instructors. It's not about the name brand, even though like if someone says, oh, I went to SVA, you're like, oh, cool. Like, you, you know that brand, but it, I don't know, it doesn't, does it really matter? I don't, I don't, as long as you have a good portfolio? No, I don't think so. get that many opportunities to talk to people who are still working in the motion design field that are like directors in the space. Uh, but I was a little, I was a little confused. I, I know you're in Los Angeles, but then you have all these things about New York. Yeah. So are you in LA now or are you in New York? I'm in LA. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I've been here for five years. Okay. And I grew up, uh, Long Island and I was in yeah New York until five years ago, basically. Okay. All right. Very interesting. Okay. So for people who, who don't know you, Daniel, can you introduce yourself and give us a little bit of your backstory? Uh, yeah. My name is Daniel Savage. Uh, designer, animator, director, artist, whatever you want to call it. Um, I've been working professionally for about 15 years, I guess, and uh, went to school for music. Uh, ended up switching to graphic design, and then I found motion design through that. Then I worked in at Comedy Central. Uh, it was my first job out of school. That kind of kicked things off. Um, went into the motion design field for a while. Uh, got a little bored of that. Went into interactive and like more like a experience type stuff. Got bored of that. Went into more film animation and then illustration, doing some more editorial stuff. And then now I'm kind of taking everything and mixing it all together. And that's uh, where I am now. And yeah, been mostly independent for my whole career. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's cool. So I'm going to go back and ask you a few questions, if you don't mind. In regards to your job at Comedy Central, what did you do and how did you get that gig? Uh, it was on-air branding. Mm -hmm. And it was, <laughs> the funny story is I got the gig because I I found, a remember MoGraph.net? It was like a message board. Yes, I, I found remember very clearly. Yeah. The Chris Scarlato, the creative director, made a post there looking for designers. So I just responded to that. And then like a week later, I was working there. <laughs> MoGraph.net was the precursor to Motionographer, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So you're like old school there. You're like a pre-Motionographer. Yeah. That's super cool. I love that. I was, yeah, I was definitely a super fan back in college, you know, just checking every blog I could get my hands on. Right. I guess surf. Remember, remember Surf Station. That I do not know. Surf Station. Okay. <laughs> so we can put a time on this. Uh, when did you graduate uh, school? Two thousand seven. Okay. Um, all right. So you see this job posting, and was it a simple matter of applying and just nailing the interview and getting that gig? Yeah, that was pretty much. That was it. Mm -hmm. It was pretty simple. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. It was kind of funny. I remember. This is like probably a stupid story, but my mom was like, you better wear, wear something nice. And I was like, I was like, I'm going to wear a hat just to show you that I'm in a cool industry. No one cares. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like a just 21 year old rebel trying to be cool. And then, and then you get the job and you're like, yeah, it doesn't, none of this matters. And, doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's funny because, you know, like parents are, they're like, Hey, uh, make a good first impression. Like show up yeah. for the job that you want. Right. And you're like, no, yeah. it doesn't work like that, mom. I'll tell you a funny story though. My younger brother who uh, only took a couple of years of college and he wound up working for me for a period of time and there was a job opportunity for him at this company. So he shows up dressed up in like a oversized uh, like uh, suit jacket yeah. with slacks and he, he, he like tried to make that appearance. Uh, and what happened was the guy who hired him his name is David. David's like, you got the job, but never come dressed like that ever again. <laughs> so they had a good laugh about it. <laughs> That's great. So that goes to show you, sometimes you do have to dress for the job, but not always what you think. It's not the uniform yeah. of, of business attire. It's to say, you know, I, I have a perspective in the world and we like that, especially yeah. in the creative field. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. How long did you last at um, uh, at Comedy Central? I was like, I was permalance there. And, oh, okay. And like nine months in, they were like, you either have to go staff or 
hit the road. <laughs> and I was <laughs> like, I was like, all right. yeah, I was like, all right, uh, I'm out. Um, but yeah, it was super, super awesome job and learned a lot. Yeah. But then it was like, I don't know, I was excited to, to work at the studios and, you know, see what that was all about. Um, and so I worked at like super fed. Uh, I, I feel like my whole resume is, are, is like studios that don't exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about that. About <laughs> so super fed. I, are you in the Jake Banks era of super fat or post Jake Banks? Was he LA? He is LA and he's the founder. Okay. I think, uh, it was it Matt Marquis who started the New York office. Maybe. I'm not sure. I don't, yeah, I don't remember. I was, I was only there for, again, it was like a probably six or seven month run. Yeah. You know, it probably was, I, I feel like 2007, it would still be under his uh, guidance. Anyways, let's, let's move on from that. Um, I want to just, I want to take us back in time before you're, you're setting music before you find graphic design and then motion design and do all the stuff that you're doing now. Um, When did you know at what age and what was the catalyst for you to think to yourself, I, you know, I want to do something creative with my life. I don't think there even was one. I think it just was always, it was always there. I thought, I thought I was going to be like a, a Disney animator is what my, my dream job was as like a child mm-hmm. or just like cartoons in general. I wanted to kind of work in entertainment, I guess. Uh, and then I just lost interest in it and started playing music. But I don't know. It's always interesting to hear people talk about like, Oh, when they realize that oh, I can make money from doing this. And I just, I don't know, maybe I'm, it was like an arrogant thought process, but it was like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make money. It's no, there's no question. It, it was like, mm. that was me at like, 10 and I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm going to do, I'm going to do that. Mm. What's the worst that could happen? What is it about your, you or your parents or your environment or your culture that said, yeah, you can be a creative person. You can make a living doing this. No problem. Uh, yeah. I wonder if, if it is like just encouragement from, from my folks. Um, mm-hmm. uh, actually my, my dad passed when I was like a kid. So maybe there was also this, this like thought when that happened, it was like, like, oh, life's short. Like you, in, you're, you grow up real quick and you're like, life's short. I'm going to do whatever I want for the, the limited time I have. Mm-hmm. So that, that could have been a big part of it too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and then my, my mom has always been, at, whatever I do, she's stoked about it. So, so that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I, I have to imagine, like, how old were you when your dad passed? Uh, 12, I think. Oh my goodness. That is really young. Okay. Brutal. <laughs> how, yeah. I mean, how did that impact um how did that impact your family? Because I still have my father and for for my family, my, my dad was um, both my parents worked, but he was the primary breadwinner and he was the stable force in our family. Like with without my dad, it's like what direction are we all heading? And he was the disciplinarian. He was a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. And how did that impact you and the family? Oh geez, uh, it, I, I, I guess it, if anything, it made us all closer. Um, mm-hmm. And um, man, I don't know. This is like a it's so weird. I've never really talked about this. This that well, that was like a just an interesting question. Never like thought about it. It uh, how did it impact us? Um, I don't know. I mean, it definitely fucked us all up a little bit, (laughs) but then made it stronger long-term, um, like pretty impressed that my mom kept everything together and we're all like successful and have like happy families and everything. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it was like, my dad was always smart about long-term thinking. And so like he had set up enough to like where my mom could still just be a mom so like that was uh helpful um and i don't know i don't i don't don't even know what else to say about it okay so let me see if i understand a couple of things that you're saying when you say us uh, do you have siblings yeah yeah i have two sisters Uh, and what what is your birth order here uh i'm in the middle okay yeah did either one of your sisters react in a stronger way than you did or no, or because the story is with my dad, he has eight or nine brothers and sisters, 
his dad also passed relatively early mm-hmm. and he had to assume the the father figure for the family. So it changed his personality, it changed how he, he carried himself. So I, I don't know, I'm just fascinated because I don't know either one of my grandfathers. They passed before I was born. So all I know are grandmothers. And so I'm just curious um, to, because you're in a place where you, you actually, there was a time that you know before and the time after and how things change. Did anybody in your family, like your, your siblings especially, did they react one way or the other? I don't know. You know what's the craziest thing about that whole situation is that I feel like leading up to it and then like the next couple of years, you just, it's like you almost just like black it out of your memory completely. And then it just becomes your normal and then you don't really remember life before it. Mm. I mean, I, I'd say like I started rebelling and, you know, dressing crazy and everything like that. Um, but I, but like, would that have happened regardless? You know, I don't, I don't know. That's something I've never really thought about, I guess. But I guess, yeah, I guess my, my older sister's always been kind of more of the, the second mom of the family, you know, and um, mm-hmm. I've always just been the, the weird middle child who just kind of goes in the corner and does weird creative stuff that everyone's like, well, what's, what's he doing over there? Right. Fellow middle child here. So I, I, nice. I feel the lies <laughs> for sure. I feel it, you know? <laughs> so it sounded to me like your, your dad prior to passing uh, w- was good with the, the finances and didn't put you guys in a weird position, which added some stability. And so his passing created a vacuum, but you guys came together as a, mm-hmm. as a family and, and made it through together in your own ways. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like, I mean, we were far from rich or anything, but he had like a steady government job. He actually fixed computers for like a, for a lab in, uh, in Long Island. So that also was what got me into computers early was he would, he mm-hmm. would, bring home spare parts and build a computer for us to like mess around with. So I was like on AOL, AOL 90, 95 and, and all that just screwing around. <laughs> People are like scratching their head. Like what, what are we talking about? <laughs> yeah. AOL who? Every, internet. If you're like uh, under 20 years old, you won't even know this company AOL, but at one time they were a very big and important <laughs> company. And it's how many Americans connected to the internet using dial up even. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, you, yeah. in the late 90s, early 2000s, we're just talking about the beginning, the dawn of Internet 1.0. Not to talk about Internet 3.0, but, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of where we were back then. Yeah. It's fascinating. I'm finding a lot of parallels between your story and my own because my older brother was really into computers. And so we had the very first IBM PC uh, that was available and it was grossly underpowered by today's standards and super expensive. I think it was over $3,000 and we were doing word processing on it. Everybody let that sink in. It was a big deal that I can actually type something and undo, you know, and revise what I, I wrote. So, so it's kind of interesting how fast te- technology changes, but yeah. so your dad introduced you to computers. You had access to computers. So this became part of your normal day-to-day interaction, right? You weren't afraid of these things. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, mm-hmm. I, I feel like everyone in my high school thought I was a hacker just because I understood the internet. It was like, and everyone, they were like one by one slowly joining. And I, and I was like, I was kind of a troll. And I, I was really into like programming, like little punters that would like kick other people offline. I, did you ever hear about those? I don't know. It would no. send, it would send a crazy HTML code. It was like, it was like in bracket H, H3333 or something like that. Font equals H333. And then it would just send that to through the IM chat and it would freeze, <laughs> freeze the other person's computer. <laughs> and so, then, I don't know. I had, so yeah, I was, I had a lot of fun with that. Um, but that also like what was got me, what introduced me to like visual basics and like very, very simple, like C plus plus programming. Mm-hmm. But then obviously the Photoshop part of like, or the design part of creating those little punters was, was more, more interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think you did more with the computers you're given than I did because I mostly played video <laughs> games and dreamt about making things, but you actually nice. made stuff. So that's pretty <laughs> cool. Another thing that you said that I, I, I want to underscore here is about this message that you picked up as, as a 12 year old, that, that life is short and life is short and like, you don't know when you're going to lose it. So why waste it doing something that you don't love? Mm-hmm. And from looking at your biography here in terms of the different things you've gotten into, I think you followed that 
to the T where you're like, I'm into music. I'm going to do this. I, I think percussion, right? Yeah. And then I'm into illustration. I'm into fine art, graphic design. So how do you know from, from your own kind of internal compass or radar, if this is a worthwhile pursuit or do you just follow your heart? Yeah. I think I just blindly go for it. Yeah. I mean, I, and actually that's, what's interesting about that is that's why I think I changed my interest so often is because like I get into something and I go all in without thinking of the bigger picture. And then I kind of get to a, a ceiling or, or the end of the path. And I'm like, wait, Oh, this is the wrong path. And I go back. And I think like, you know, that's a kind of, I guess it's a good thing because you pick up all these different things that you can apply to the bigger picture, but I, I should take a step back and think more, but yeah, I, I kind of just go for it and hope for the best, I guess. Mm. I'm going to reveal something about myself and no way should you feel pressured to reveal something about yourself? But <laughs> I, I'm seeing parallels, right? I have a pretty obsessive, addictive personality. And that's why I stay away from drugs and alcohol. Because when I find something I'm really into, I go really deep. I do that deep dive and I don't care about anything else. So when I'm into like fishing, I'm like buying magazines and books. I'm reading, I'm talking <laughs> to every single person. I'm looking into buying uh, tools and, and things to make my own uh, fishing flies and things like that. I'm buying multiple reels and all the gear in the kit. And then I reach saturation. You call it ceiling. It's like, I'm done. I'm good with this. What else is new and interesting? Yeah. I do that. Yeah. It, that does that sound like you? Uh, I think so. Um, I get discouraged with side hobbies. Like, so I got the, like the guitar right here. I see. Like I started, started learning the guitar cause I can't, I'm in an apartment. I can't play the drums. So I, I was like, oh, I need something to be a creative outlet. So I started that. And then like, but like now I'm into trying to learn how to surf. And that's, that I, I'm completely uninterested in learning how to play the guitar. I'll get back into it eventually. But like, so like I, I dabble a lot. I'd say more, more so than going fully in uh, and hitting that end. Yeah. I see. But that's more with like hobbies, I guess with, with, with the art and work stuff, it's, it's probably closer to what you're saying, but becoming obsessed with it. Mm -hmm. Like right now I'm like, uh, and I think the reason why Greg kind of introduced us was like right now I'm completely obsessed with NFTs and web three and where that, where that stuff is going. So that's, that's like my obsession right now. Yeah. Okay. I want to definitely talk to you about NFTs. I want to stay on this whole dabbling thing. All right. Yeah. So oftentimes I'm telling people that I'm working with, I'm trying to coach. I'm like, you know what? Pick your hobbies carefully because you only have a finite amount of time. You want to focus mm -hmm. whatever it is you want to do. I don't care, but focus in on those things and get really good at something and have that discipline. So you learn something about yourself. It builds uh, self-esteem. It builds character. And you seem to be okay. I'm going to dabble with this. Ah, that didn't work. I'll try this. Um, what is the internal narrative in terms of like what's happening inside your head when you try something and you, you don't want to pursue it anymore? How do you give yourself permission to say, you know what, that was really not that interested in that right now. I'll come back to this later. I think it's more so I get really into it briefly. And then it, to, to be honest, it's probably usually just work gets busy and then mm -hmm. I take a break from it. And then it's hard to find that motivation to, to jump back in. Cause you don't have, you're not in, in like a routine of playing of both well, just with guitar specifically playing every day. So that getting back into that ha habit is really hard. You know, some people, that's all they do. They just keep dabbling and they never actually never find anything to go deep in. Some people are super hyper-focused and don't dabble at all. I think it's a mix of these two things that actually gives us joy, mm -hmm. but uh, helps us to build uh, enough uh, authority or expertise in what it is that we want to do. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. So all through your life, it seems like you knew what you wanted to do and you had the self-belief and self-awareness that, you know what, if, I, if I'm going to do this, I'll, I'll be successful. I'm not really concerned about that. And it seems like you've manifested that into reality. So I will talk a little bit more, more about your work. So I, I kind of look at your body of work as a combination of a couple of different things. And I'm going to say it the way I see it, but then I'd love for you to describe it in your own way. It's kind of hand-drawn looking lo-fi illustrations that are combined with cell animations and some of these Memphis style patterns. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's a design thing. So mm -hmm. how, how would you describe your aesthetic? Uh, yeah, I mean, that that's that sounds right. I think it's uh, playing into my limitations and like exploiting them to try to find something that, that I can make my own 
rather than um, avoid something because I'm not good at it. It's like make it bad on purpose or something. I don't know. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm probably like the most confident about my work is the rhythm of, of the animation. And that just comes back from playing drums, I think. But then the design part is always like, I don't think it comes as natural. I feel like I'm going on a tangent here, but yeah, I think, but I guess so the point being like, like, oh, I'm going to take that insecurity or limitation and just try to own it and not shy away from it, I guess. Yeah. I like that. So let me see if I understand this. So, I, I mean, you're saying an idea that I feel in, in slightly different words. So playing into your limitations and not worrying too much about the things that you're not good at. So it's like, if I, don't want to do 3d i'm going to just focus on hand-drawn or cell animation or things i can control right and then trying to develop something unique that comes out from out of that place did i hear that right yeah i'd say so Mm -hmm. which actually it's it's funny going back to the dabble thing i did start learning blender and then won't work out crazy and i (laughs) stopped it but (laughs) that was like during that period where you're like i gotta i gotta bring 3d into this (laughs) exactly yeah I saw on your website something about uh, something savage IPA. And at first I was like, is this a real thing? And then at the bottom it says uh, there's a 3D credit down there from uh, a guy named Justin Laws. Right. Yeah. So I was like, oh, so this is definitely, I mean, is this an example of like, I have an idea. I know what I'm good at in terms of design, color blocking and patterns and printmaking. And then someone else could make this look like a 3D can. That's not my thing to do right now. Yeah. Well, that was, that, that was actually, that was a real client project. Oh, that's a real client. Yeah. And they're called House of Cans out based in, I think in London. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think every month or so, every other month, they, they invite an artist to design the can. And then they like come up with a name based on it. And so they, so they named it the something set. It's funny because it does sound like a fake, like student project. You're like, oh, I'm going to name it after myself. But, <laughs> but they came up with that name. Uh, mm-hmm. And then we didn't get like, like high-end product shots. So I just asked my buddy Justin to to do some 3D renders for it, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. I, I wasn't sure because I was like, I think there's a real project and it's real Canon, but then there's a 3D credit. So it kind of threw me off a little bit. So this this company, um, they do limited release artist-inspired cans? Yeah, yeah. It's pretty rad. Yeah, that is really rad. And I think they're, they're, it's just like a small storefront somewhere mm-hmm. in the city and... And they just like make their own beer and collaborate with artists. And that's it. It's, yeah, it's awesome. Same beer, different cans or different beer? It's a different beer. Every like They're constantly like experimenting and they'll have a beer that they'll collaborate with someone on. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Someone has a question. It's going to sound really weird. So how do you taste? <laughs> I, they, they couldn't send any because it was, uh, shipping to LA was just going to be too crazy or something. <laughs> So, so I, never even got to, to. <laughs> I never even got to drink my own beer. I know. <laughs> All right. If you were to describe how you might taste as an IPA beer, what, what would you describe? What are the oh, notes it's going to hit? I'm I just curious. Know. I'm not even a big beer beer guy, actually. Yeah. <laughs> might it be spicy, fruity? Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't drink beer at all, so I have no idea. I guess fruity. 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 Fruit yeah. notes there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> comes from a good hop. I, I don't know. I'm just making yeah, stuff yeah. I don't know anything about. <laughs> but the illustrations um, that that are on the can are so unique that I think it would just jump off the shelf. I mean, it might even attract a different kind of customer. I'm like, oh, hey, mom, I was like, I'd like to try this drink. I was like, no, it's a beer. So, yeah, yeah. There's something like really fun and attractive about it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Appreciate um, it. The other thing that you mentioned, which uh, I, I'd love for you to speak about, and, and people don't fully understand it when I say this, when I was first starting out my company, there, there, was, a, there was a guy's name is Ben Lopez, and he was really into music and composition, electronic music. And when I started working with him, he just knew how to animate like nobody's business. And from that point forward, I always thought to myself, people who have a musical background, either playing instrument or composition, they can see rhythm. I cannot. And so the way that he would adjust the keyframes, I, I just couldn't even keep up with them. So at that point, I'm like, Ben, I surrender. 
you animate all of this. You're just way better at it than I am. I'll go do something else. I'll go typeset or something. So you you mentioned before, like your the rhythm of the animation because of your background in music and, and percussion. Do you know why it seems like people who are into music have a a better job at animating or can do a better job? Well, I, I guess first I would I wouldn't say a better job. There's definitely people who don't play music or right way better animators than I'd ever be. But I would, uh, it it helps. I think it's. Yeah, because I mean, it's just timing, right? It's just um, like when you learn about, for example, like in in playing the drum kit, there's something called ghost notes, where it's like little like accents that are in between the main. So it's like if there's a main beat on like one and the one and three or something, in between that you could do like a eighth eighth note here and there. That's like little accents, and like that, like just like that way of thinking definitely translates into, oh, if I need this circle to go from point A to B, you know, it can, it can like hesitate for a second before it goes. And then it's, it's the same, it's like almost exactly the same type of thing. And so if you do that for, you know, whatever, 10 years every day, like for like two hours a day, then it's just, it's just going to become natural to, to think that way. Mm -hmm. Mm. I think it's, uh, I, I don't, I'm probably going to butcher this, but like music is in the, the silence between notes. It's a spacing, right? And you're talking about this ghost note and that's kind of interesting. I've not heard that term before, but when you talk about animation, I then I get it. Some of the things you're talking about is like anticipation and overshoot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so we sure. feel the, like we want it to move and then it hesitates or it pulls back and then it moves mm-hmm. and then it misses the mark and then it comes back and it, those are the kinds of things that I see really prevalent in the work of people who understand animation. I see it in your work, obviously, but it feels human. It feels, it doesn't feel digital and cold. Yeah, definitely. And it's adding like a bit of style to it too, to give it that extra little, whatever, whatever it is. The, <laughs> the, thing the that, je ne sais quoi, whatever that is. Yeah, the thing that draws you into it, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, even if you are not familiar with animation or rhythm, uh, you can feel it in your body when you're looking at the work. There's something really attractive about it. And if you study animation and this is what you do, you can point out, there it is. That's what it's doing. The motion curves look really good. It's speeding up here and slowing down there. But most definitely when you look at something that isn't done by someone who understands this, there's something that's off. It feels super digital and it doesn't have that kind of finesse. Mm-hmm. Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to our conversation. Switching gears, uh, you started uh, Something Savage in 2014. Uh, this is your, is this your production company? Yeah, it was, it was me sort of escaping the, like the in-house uh, booking type, type work and trying to get my own clients. 
And I think at first I had ambitions to make it a, a bigger studio. And then as I started getting clients and hiring uh, freelancers to help me, like if I was juggling a couple of jobs at the same time, uh, I realized I was just being a produce, more of a producer than anything. And, and I just, I wanted to be, I would be like jealous of the guy I just, or girl I just hired. And, right. and like, I'm like, oh, I want to be doing what you're doing. This sucks. And then, uh, so then it's more, so then I was like, that, that's also actually what drew me into the uh, illustration types stuff. It was like the way an illustrator does business was really appealing to me. It's all project based and they don't, you know, they don't get, uh, I mean, you, obviously you can do like a, a contract type booking, but, but it was just, it was like, Oh, here's like, here's the scope. Here's what it's going to cost. And I'll talk to you next week when I have something to share, you know, and that, that was really appealing to me. Uh, and so I'm like, how can I take parts of that, but while still doing animation and not have to build a big, uh, a big production company. So it's like finding that, that middle ground of like where I can kind of fit in the cracks between the two, the two different things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now when you're, when you're juggling more work than you can process, are you, ha- are you having to continue to work in that producer role role or are you hiring someone to help do that? So you can actually do the work. Yeah, no, it, uh, it, it never really gets to the point where I need to hire a producer, but I'll, I'll hire friends to help me animate. Mm-hmm. Usually, usually character animation is, is the thing that's my weak point, I guess, um, when it comes to animation. So I'll hire someone who's an expert at that, that, that I'm friends with that I trust and I don't need to babysit them. And I'm just, I'll go back to what I'm doing and then they'll, they'll check in whenever, you know? So it's like that, that type of thing. Yeah. But it's not even, it's not really, it's not that often. I tried to keep a good work life balance, I guess. Mm-hmm. to where I can do the, do the work I want to do um, without being too much of a manager, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're in this position where I think a lot of people would love to be where you, where you got out of school, you did like full-time freelance and then you kind of uh, freelance around different studios. Sadly, many of them are not around today. It's fine. <laughs> um, it's not your fault. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you're not the angel of death here. <laughs> right. And then you're now an independent where you can actually have a direct relationship with clients and have the possibility of hiring uh, freelancers to, to do what you used to do for other studios. Um, how did you go about acquiring these relationships with clients? Like I saw that you do work for Volvo. Like how did you get that client? That one specifically came through an agent who helps me mm. find work. And that one came through them and it was through uh, Acne as an agency in somewhere in Europe. I can't remember exactly, but, um, so there was like, there was some like layers there. Um, so I didn't actually get to meet anyone from Volvo, but I think that's also, you know, it's an agency job. It's that happens, that happens often. Right. But yeah, yeah, they, they help a lot. Uh, but I've only been on their roster for like two or three years, maybe two. Uh Um, so before that it was just being, was just being in Brooklyn for 10 years and like meeting lots of people and, you know, word of mouth type stuff. And then you're just like, Hey, I'm going to do this on my own now. And then people are like, okay, we'll give you a shot. Mm-hmm. And then lots of cold, cold calling, you know, that, that type of thing, just mm. knocking on, knocking on doors, seeing what happens. Mm-hmm. I hear that story uh, quite often, actually people in New York, because it's such a tight knit community and you can actually accidentally bump into all kinds of people if you go to a local watering holes, you're, you're going to meet people. It's just how New York works. I think it's pretty unique and exclusive to New York because I don't hear about that in LA. You don't just bump into people. We're very much a car culture here. Everybody's so far spread mm-hmm. out. But you said something which raised my eyebrow. And cold calling? You, you cold call clients? Or <laughs> tell me about that. Well, I, I guess I think the biggest thing was when, uh, when I was like excited about illustration and I was like, uh, I think it's kind of like a classic uh, illustration tale where you, you go to the uh, Barnes and Nobles and you take a picture of the, they list the art director in, in all the magazines. So it just, I went there, any cool magazine I found, I took a picture and then I went home, made a spreadsheet and just sent out a ton of emails. And then it, it actually worked. I don't know. It, it started, uh, it was kind of slow, but then it just snowballed. And then, so yeah, I've tried just like finding 
random agency art directors and just be like, hey, what's up? Love to work with you. I don't think it really works that often, but I guess it doesn't really hurt either, you know? Yeah. What you say sounds really simple, but a lot of people don't do the simple things and then they don't have these opportunities available to them. I've never done that. I never even thought to do that, to go look at the magazine, who's buying, who's, <laughs> who's deciding who, who, who to work with. And then you just go and reach out to them. Yeah. Not, not rocket science here, folks, but <laughs> yeah. the basic stuff works, right? Yeah. And this is how you got leads? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. So then you, then you get the, these like, these simple, like low budget, uh, editorial illustrations, mm-hmm. but there's like, um, a chance to like put yourself into the work and, and like have, have a lot of fun with it. And then, and I think that, and then you post it on Instagram or whatever. And then the agency art directors start to notice. And then it's like, you know, one thing leads to another. And then, um, Oh, I see. Then you don't have to go to Barnes and Nobles anymore. <laughs> <laughs> All right. He's, he's laying out the, um, Daniel's laying out the blueprint for how, if you're just coming up in the world, what you can do, you, you get a lead in which way you can. And he's suggesting just look at who's making the decisions who to work with. And they're not tremendously high budget. So there's a good chance that you can get an opportunity. And then you document that work and then you post it on Instagram because now it's a real project you're doing for a real client, maybe with a name that you know. And then that begets you the next opportunity. Is this now how you, you get the, the leads that you get is through Instagram? I don't know. Pro- probably uh, Instagram, Twitter, or just like word of mouth. I don't know. It's, I'll get like random emails from people and, and I, and I always try to like trace like where, where could they have found me or like, or, or if, like if, if there's work of mine, that's in the mood board, like, okay, like, Oh, this is from this project. And you can kind of trace it a little bit, but Mm-hmm. I think it's just kind of like just being out there, just doing it for a long time. And just, I don't know, it's a, it's like a weird thing. Uh, it, well, it's not always so, so easy to trace back like the origins of where you get a lead from. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, and it's, it's tough. I mean, you can ask people like, Oh, I think I saw you somewhere. Uh, and they're like, okay, where, or somebody told you. So oftentimes mm-hmm. if we want to repeat the success that we have, we have to find out where these things come from. So we put more effort there because obviously if you love that kind of project, and that kind of client, then you want to get more of what they got. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you mentioned that you're represented by Acne as a as a production company. They represent you, or no? no it's um, uh, Agent Agent Pekka. Oh, Agent Pekka. Sorry. And yeah, they're more of like a like an artist illustrator rep, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting because it's not your typical production company that reps directors. And I think I like that a little more. Mm-hmm. There's no pitching really. Uh, it's more, I just, here's their work. Here's a, here's what it's going to cost. Do you want it or not? You know? Yeah. I've never been repped by a production company though. So I don't have much experience to compare it. Mm-hmm. It's not great. I going to tell you it's not great. <laughs> okay. Well, in general, it, we always feel this way and whether it's true or not, we always feel like our reps aren't doing as much as they can to get us gigs. And we hear about, Oh, Johnny and Mary got the opportunity to look at that project. How come we're not in the conversations? And mm. who knows? There's a thousand reasons why. Yeah. Um, but when you talked about like when you tell them like here's the price, either they say yes or no. Uh, who who determines the price? You or do they work with you on this? Yeah, they'll um, they'll kind of if so, someone emails them, they'll sort it out, get on a call, get details. Then they'll bring it. Then they'll come to me and be like. It's actually pretty cool. They'll forward the entire email chain. So you're, mm-hmm. you're aware of everything that's going on. So it's like very mm-hmm. transparent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and then they'll be like, here's what I'm thinking. Does it sound good to you? And usually it's, it's like, yeah, that, that sounds great. And then, it, then it's like up to the client whether, whether or not they, they want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. I'm I'm glad that you're able to do what you do to have the kind of relationships that you have and, not have to pitch and go after the work and jump through so many hoops. It's really cool. Okay. Now we're going to get to the part where I think we both want to talk about, <laughs> and I think I'll try my best to, to bring it all together for, for everyone who's paying attention. So you mentioned that, um, I guess in the late nineties, early two thousands, you're messing around with computers. You're, you're, you're writing like bots or code to like boot people off servers and things like that <laughs> just for fun. 
And so obviously you're a guy who's comfortable with technology. The thing that's popping right now that everybody's talking about that's getting, that are, they're all getting involved in this because there's tremendous opportunities for artists is none other than NFTs. I myself, I'm starting to go down that rabbit hole and I see that mm-hmm. you have a collection. Tell me about your interest in NFTs and what is it that you see that you want to do with them? Yeah, um, around, uh, I guess, towards the end of 2020, I feel like it was when everything, everyone kind of started like paying it. It's been around for a while, but everyone started paying attention to it then. And I, in that moment, it's so funny. In that moment, I thought I was late and I was like, try, I was trying to get on all the platforms and the, and the, the waiting list was so backed up, you couldn't get on. But yeah, it was just, I, I don't know what it, what it was. It's like, there's something about it that, that made the internet fun again, I guess. Um, and I guess maybe that's, part of the whole web three thing. Mm-hmm. And so like I, I listed a couple of things on, on the, the platforms on like, I think it was called makers page and then, and uh, foundation mm-hmm. were two that, that I was on. And I was like, and I, and I sold a couple of things and it feels incredible to, to sell your work. But then it was like, there was like gas fees involved. So you're, you're paying to list it. And I, and, and it, there's no guarantee that someone's going to buy it. Yeah. So it, it, I got a little discouraged. And then, uh, I, I, I was in a, I, that's probably, this is probably more of a pandemic thing, but I was just like, I was like, I can't deal with all the noise on Twitter. And I unfollowed everyone on, I unfollowed everyone on Twitter just to like break the habit. Uh, and then like I left for the whole summer, I didn't look at, I looked at Instagram, but I tried to avoid social media in general. Uh, and then I came back in October or November and, and started seeing all these that, then I realized what was happening with like the more DIY collection stuff where it's, you create your own smart contract and you build this, this thing and you don't have to pay the gas. And if someone wants to buy it, they pay the gas. you know? So it was like all the things I didn't like about it. Like there's, there's no uh, percentage that a, uh, the, you know, I think foundation takes like 15% or something. So it's like, that's, that's doesn't exist anymore. So it's like, Oh, I can give this percentage to a, a developer instead and do it myself. And, and it's also just like this, I, it, the idea of generative art in general is, is really interesting and like finding ways to do that with my limited coding knowledge. Yeah. So it was like all those things combined. I was like, I was like, you know what, let me, let me take a stab at this. I had a, my friend, Mike Bodge helped me put it all together uh, with the smart contract and the site and everything. And yeah, and it's, it's interesting. It's uh, I'm like, I'm like totally hooked now. And I'm like, we're working on phase two of, of the projects called infinite grid and kind of interested, interested to see where it goes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, for infinite grid, the things I've seen are parts of like animations that loop perfectly, I think. Right. Mm-hmm. And then compose in different configurations using some kind of engine where you uh, adjust parameters to how often you see this, how, how rare this, mm-hmm. this trait is. Right. And it builds right, yeah. that composition based on the variables that you provide. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was a way to bring the, my interest of like, you know, back in the day, graphic design, grid, everything's grid based and that, um, mm-hmm. trying to push, push that into an art expressive place. And then also taking uh, traditional uh, hand-drawn animation loops that I, I really love to create. And how can we use random codes to build however many unique renders based on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how has the reception been to the NFTs you've listed? Uh, good. I mean, we sold 700 and some, a little over 700 of them. And, um, and yeah, I don't know. Everyone that came across the project seems really stoked about it. It's a tough thing when you're just, because I, I guess because I like took a break from the summer and I didn't keep building it's like you're almost like starting from scratch. So it was like a little tricky getting the word out on, on some of that. But now we have like a little community of like a thousand people on discord and, and that's slowly building and we're working on where to go from there and giving some rewards to people who bought the grids. And yeah, I don't know. It seems there's been pretty good uh, feedback based on Mm. all that. Do you think in the very near future, this could be your full-time occupation or obsession <laughs> uh maybe i mean anything's possible really right i don't want to go 
all in just in case it does dry up and like people stop buying, you know, and then you're stuck and you obviously uh, I still have like client relationships that I want to maintain and all that. But I guess it is like, you can be a little more picky with the clients that you take on. Yeah. Which is, which is cool. Um, so that, that is definitely helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk to, uh, I talk to p- creative people about this all the time that you need some cushion and the cushion away from the, the, the peaks and the valleys of client work because it can be very irregular. It's that expression feast or famine. There's either too much to eat or I'm starving. Mm-hmm. So some, some form of passive income in the form of an NFT or something else can help to soften the lows. And so you can skate for a while. And if there's a client that you don't feel for whatever reason, you can just say, it's not right for me. You deserve someone who's going to give it hundred percent. I don't think I can at this point mm-hmm. in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, what's, what's really interesting about NFTs right now is that the variety of what can be considered a piece of art is all over the place from weird screenshots into really cool generative pieces of art. But I noticed with yours, it's, it's really kind of fresh because it's non-figurative. There's no form. Like it's just, it's grids and shapes and lines and abstract things moving around. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's actually go- going back to like, not really thinking too hard on things. It was just like, this is, this is the idea that came to me and I just went, went with it. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's cool to hear that it's different, I guess, um, whether that's a good thing or not, because maybe, <laughs> Maybe I'd be rich if it was if it wasn't different. But <laughs> if your grid was on a monkey or something, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I'll just say it like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's disproportionate in terms of like which NFT makes the big dollars, and and then there's everybody else, right? It's like yeah. same thing in, in life and economics. There's a small yeah. percentage that just seems like they could do no wrong, and then everybody else is like, well, I wonder what my next drop is going to be like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, I've enjoyed this conversation. I want to make sure I ask you this question before we get out of here, which is, you know, I, I want you to think about perhaps in, in your life, um, if there was a singular transformative moment, an inflection point where there was a before and then the after is so different. We talked about the passing of your father. That's probably an inflection point. But um, is there another one in your in your life where you're like, there was something significant there. Cause I think there's opportunities to learn. Probably switching majors in college. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I guess like every few years, it's like, there's like something that happens that pushes you in a new direction. And I think in college, it was changing majors. Then outside of college, it was living in Williamsburg and Brooklyn and being surrounded by uh, super talented people that, and you're just like, you, you start pushing, you're like, like all my roommates were like, really like rad, like, uh, produced, uh, like music producers or other uh, graphic designers and stuff like that. And so we would all, we would all just like work really hard and, and like push each other. So like moments like that, it's, I, I guess a lot of it is really like who you're around in your community. Um, that's probably, that's probably a big part of it. Right. Yeah. So like when I was, you know, I got a little older and I don't want roommates anymore. Then you get studio mates. And then the people that you work with at um, in this like grungy warehouse in in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, is now that that those are the people that inspire you and influence you, and you want to kind of keep up with them. So it just like that's that evolution: classmates, roommates, studio mates. <laughs> <laughs> Take me back to that point. You're going to school. Is this at Sunny uh, or S U N Y? Yeah, Sunny Purchase. SUNY purchase. Yeah. Um, you're, you're going there to major in music. Right. And it was there a idea that you had, like, I'm going to do this with this education. Yeah, actually. So this is funny. The same things like being inspired by someone and them influencing you. Like my, my percussion teacher in high school went to music school, then became a percussion teacher. And like, now I'm learning from him and he was like super cool. And I was like, I want to be this guy when I get older. Yeah. Uh, so that was, I was going to go for a performance degree and then get an education degree and then teach. And then also like try to, try to make it as a performer. But, um, but the, the education was like the, the easy backup plan, I guess. Yeah. And I'm very, very glad I didn't do that. But, uh, 
but yeah, that was like the safe, the safe way to be a musician, I guess. Mm-hmm. Would you be a drummer in a rock band or in some kind of big band? I mean, what was the idea there? Well, I was studying like really avant-garde percussion uh, ensemble work, mm-hmm. like really, really pretentious stuff. It was like super like pots and pans clanging and like, Oh, I, I don't know. That. It's, um, that, I mean, that was, that was like, but that was purchase. Purchase was like really like art forward school. Um, and I think that part of it, that actually may be why I switched into graphic design because it was too, it was too artsy fartsy for me or something, you know? Um, but, but yeah, just to answer your question, uh, I probably would have been playing in bands, gigging as a percussionist and, and then teaching. So it's like mm-hmm. kind of like what, how I, what I do now where I'm like, just like all these different little pots, uh, that like make up the big picture, you know? Yeah. You know, when you said that, I don't know why, but I just had this flash. Um, have you seen whiplash? Yeah. Okay. From your perspective, I mean, uh, what is your take on the portrayal of like an obsessed drummer who's being brutalized by an instructor and just to what ends this person is trying to pursue this life as a musician? Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen it, but um, there were, I mean, there were, I, I guess I didn't really have the, the focus that like is portrayed in that, but there were people in my program that, that had that focus and they were in, in the studio all day long, just practicing the same four notes over and over again, just mm-hmm. to try like on, on like a marimba, just just like trying to get it like perfect. And I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I don't have it like that. I can't, I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but then we did have a, we did have a, a professor who uh, I guess he calmed down when I got there. Cause he was a little older, but there were stories mm-hmm. that he would like throw drumsticks at people if they screwed up. And <laughs> so it's, I don't think it's too far from the truth. <laughs> yeah. The, I think the interesting things about uh, these stories that we see is we sit there and we scratch our face or our head and chin and say, could that be real? But it's that that's based on somebody's experience somewhere mm-hmm. because that's what makes the characterization so believable. And I, I've had instructors like that old school instructors that would make you question your own self-worth all the time. Yeah. And they, it's old school. Like we don't have those kinds of instructors anymore because it'd be borderline abuse yeah. you know, or assault or something. But yeah. it's kind of fun to just watch vicariously. Like, my gosh, that's sometimes that's what it takes to be at the various, very highest level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're going to study to, to, uh, you're doing avant-garde percussion. Uh, you're going to gig and then you're going to teach as a backup plan. What tells you now it's time to change? And, and how do you make that decision? Is it an easy one or is it through like consternation, like and consulting friends and family? Like, I, Hey, is this the right thing for me? Uh, I'm trying to go into my head as a 18 year old. And it was, you know, I would go to class and I was learning these pieces of music. Okay. The biggest thing at the time. So I, I would, I would go practice all day, study, uh, go to rehearsal, whatever. And then I would go home and I would open up Photoshop and just start clicking around just for fun. And I realized like uh, that part of the day was what I looked forward to. So part of me thinks that if I had gone to music for production, I would have stuck with it because it was more of like a record, you're a recording artist, you create something that you can like, hey, here, check, look at this thing I made versus performance where you're, you spend six months studying a single piece of music and then you go, you play it once and then you you never look at it again. So that, that's what I got out of graphic design was I could create something and just be done with it. And then like, you know, put it on the wall and you're like, start the next thing. And that was a big part of it, I think. And the funny thing is that it, <laughs> with performance, you can study something for, you know, the whole semester and then you perform it. And then you miss, you miss one note and it's the whole thing's ruined uh, versus if I'm in Photoshop, I just hit undo. (laughs) 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 It's less pressure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. I love that answer, by the way. 
So you you have a life plan. You think this is what's going to happen. And you find out there's something you enjoy doing a little bit more in your free time. And then true to the to, to your arc is that you learn to listen to that. And you're like, you know what? If I enjoy graphic design and jumping on Photoshop, maybe this should be my thing. Mm-hmm. And so do you have to make a big decision to say, okay, I'm going to switch majors. And that means like I got to get paperwork signed. I got to apply to the different department. Is that a big deal or is that a pretty easy seamless transition there? Well, uh, I think it was, it was easy just because it was the same college. I think if I had to transfer, that would have been a pain in the ass. I was, and I thought in my head, I was like, Oh, I need to go to SVA or, or RISD or something. But then the more I looked into the conservatory of art at SUNY purchase, it was like, Oh, these actually this, this professor teaches at SVA and, and this person knows this person who works there, you know, so you're like, Oh, this is probably like good enough. Uh, not, not to like, I don't mean, I don't mean that as like a, a, a jab at purchase. I just mean like you get out what you put in. Right. So it's, yeah, I don't think you need, you don't need to spend, I mean, it was a state school, so it was super cheap. So, so like I, I didn't have, uh, I paid my student loans off really quickly and I'm very grateful for that. And, that's I, I if anyone asks me, I always say go to go to the cheapest school you can find that has the best instructors because it's not about it's not about the name brand, even though like if someone says, "Oh, I went to s v a you're like oh cool like you you know that brand, but it i don't know it doesn't does it really matter I don't, I don't as long as you have a good portfolio no, I don't think so mm-hmm. um but oh yeah, to answer your question though yeah it was <laughs> just switching over was. Uh, I'm sure there was paperwork. I don't really remember it being that big of a deal, but a lot of my credits transferred from uh, music to uh, art, which is pretty cool, which actually also I'm kind of, I'm rambling now, but it it kind of sucked because like I didn't have to do some of the entry level art classes, which I wish I had done like life drawing and stuff like that. Um, They were just like, Oh yeah, this is, you don't need to do that. You're good. And I'm like, all right, cool. And then I ended up taking them later on my own. But yeah, don't. So that's the other tip is don't don't skip the uh, uh, foundation classes. Yeah, I think the sometimes the biggest learning happens in the foundation classes, which on surface seem like the most boring classes, and you want to get to mm-hmm. do the fun stuff. But the fun stuff has more meaning and impact when you learn actually the the core skills that you need, the, the ability to see and understand the form and render it, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Getting a little geekier, but yeah. <laughs> So did you have to, uh, I mean, did you have to tell anybody like your mom or he's like, no, I'm just changing. I'm sure I told my mom and mm-hmm. I'm sure in her head, she was like, oh man, all, all those drum lessons I paid for down the, down the drain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like a parent's nightmare. It's like, oh, all right. We're yeah. not going to do anything with all that, huh? Well, I had to yeah. deal with the noise, the banging, the, the gear, the lessons and. Oh, graphic design is a very silent <laughs> hobby. Why couldn't you have figured this out earlier? You know, you're killing yeah, me. That's yeah. so funny. I have two boys. Uh, they they both had piano lessons and only one of them is continuing on in that pursuit. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with that. And I, I think the ask was, give it a couple of years, after which, you know, you you know some basics and you decide if you want to pursue this or not. One of them, like, I, I don't think he's articulated to this, uh, to us, but... He loves playing the piano and this is, I, nice. I think he's, it's going to be part of his life for the rest of his life, as far as I can tell. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. Okay. Okay. This is awesome. Um, I, I really appreciate you jumping on. I just want to be mindful of time. I, I really appreciate you jumping on the podcast, sharing a little bit about your story. Daniel, it's been a real pleasure. I want to wish you the best of luck in your future creative endeavors, including your NFT project, Infinite Grid. Where can people find out a little bit more about you? Where do they go? Uh, somethingsavage.com. So simple, somethingsavage.com. Yeah. And uh, you check me out on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> Throw more signs when you do that. Yeah. Can, can <laughs> what what is your handle on Instagram? Some, something Savage. It's Something Savage across oh. the board, yeah. Okay. Oh, you, you, got, <laughs> you got lucky on that, that you can claim one thing across everything. So it's Something yeah. Savage on Instagram, on Twitter. And are you, you're back on Twitter now, right? I am. Yes. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Because yeah. I know you took a break there. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me. This is, uh, this is awesome. 
This is Daniel Savage, and you are listening to The Future. Thanks for joining us this time. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Chris Doe and produced by me, Greg Gunn. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me? Head over to thefuture.com slash heychris and ask away. We read every submission and we just might answer yours in a later episode. If you'd like to support the show and invest in yourself while you're at it, visit thefuture.com. You'll find video courses, digital products, and a bunch of helpful resources about design and creative business. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.